Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will take up the first 13 verses of Matthew 17, and will cover the events on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, after six days, after what? Well, this was after Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus had predicted that he would go down to Jerusalem, be killed, and be resurrected after three days. Six days after that, Jesus took only three of the disciples, not all of them. He took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Now, where this high mountain is, nobody knows. Traditionally, it's Mount Tabor, north of Galilee. I remember driving by there in a bus and seeing it in the distance. It looked like a little mole, like a little mole hill, a little anthill on the flat terrain. Of course, nobody knows where the Mount of Transfiguration was. But, the, of course, the tourist people have tried to figure it out for us. Now, they went by themselves. They didn't go with the other disciples, the other nine apostles. They just, those three went. Now, let's read the synoptic parallels in Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Now, that to be alone is extra. Why were they going to be alone? Well, we find out in Luke 9, 28, the other parallel passage. After eight day, about eight days after these words, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountains to pray. So they were going to be alone to pray. Again, this is part of the ministry. It's not just healing and teaching, but it's being alone and praying. Now you'll notice in the Luke passage, it says after, about eight days after their journey to Caesarea Philippi, whereas Matthew and Mark say after six days. How do we reconcile that? Very easily. The NIV Study Bible points out that Luke counts the day of Peter's confession and the day of transfiguration in that eight days. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. The day of trans is at the beginning. The six days go by. That's seven. Then the day of transfiguration is on the next day, which is the eighth day. But Matthew and Mark count only the days in between the day of Peter's confession and the day of transfiguration for a total of six. And you'll notice Luke's, at any rate, says about eight days. He wasn't trying to be absolutely precise anyway. So, liberals, if any should be listening to this podcast, which I doubt, to this audio, which I doubt, there is no contradiction in the scripture, so just get over it. Now, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus. It's interesting, these three had an especially close relationship to Jesus, and it's very easy to see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who were the three disciples who were close to Jesus when he became distressed over his impending crucifixion, Matthew 26:37, Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then when he healed the synagogue ruler Jairus' daughter, early in his Galilean ministry, Mark 5.37 says this, He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. So Peter, James, and John were the kind of the inner circle of the apostles. They were the ones that are closest to Jesus. Notice that Peter was taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, even though Jesus had just been offended by him. Get behind me, Satan. Now let's go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'm going to show you some glory. Which shows that Jesus, of course, is very forgiven. He didn't take it. He didn't ruin Peter's ministry forever because he had screwed up. And Peter obviously was rehabilitated. He was still following Jesus. It didn't seem to bother him ultimately bother him that Jesus that Jesus had called him the devil. Now, why did Jesus take these three up on the mountaintop to be witnesses? This is a scriptural requirement to establish a fact. In the book of Deuteronomy and the law, it says, it says, let every fact be established by the witness of two or three. 
And so here's the witnesses, Peter and James, and they did witness to this after the resurrection. Jesus told them to be quiet before. Now we go to Matthew 17, verse 2. He, Jesus, was transformed in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as the light. It is suggested by one of my commentators that this would happen at night so that the glory would shine even more. So this was an awesome sight. Even his clothes became as white as the light. He was shining all the way through his clothes. This is a typical manifestation of God's glory. It's white, dazzling light, just like Paul on the road to Damascus. Mark 9, verse 3 says this, His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. So supernatural white. Matthew 17, verse 3, Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now Moses probably represented the Old Covenant. He was the old lawgiver, the Old Covenant, and Elijah represented the prophets because he was one of the major, one of the, one of the most important prophets. Now, here's some opinions on how Peter, James, and John knew that it was Moses and Elijah because they appeared in a glorified state like Jesus, and it might be sort of hard to recognize them. Plus, Peter, James, and John had never seen Moses and Elijah, didn't know what they looked like. John Gill says it was immediate divine revelation, which I don't think so. Probably from the discourse with Jesus, which followed, Jesus explained to them who this, who Moses and Elijah were. Now, another question that arises is, how did Moses bodily appear? Well, he was probably resurrected. You could say he appeared in a vision, or you could say he appeared there in his glorified body. Elijah could not have appeared in a glorified body, or most probably not, because he was translated bodily, bodily into heaven, never saw death. Second Kings 2.11, as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. And I don't exactly know what happened in that situation, but obviously Elijah didn't directly die. Now what the appearance of Moses and Elijah did do, it confirmed Peter, James, and John in the afterlife is that life does indeed continue after death and that there is indeed a resurrection of the dead because Moses had been dead about 1400 years and there he was. Again, you're, if you're assuming a bodily appearance and not a visionary appearance. Now Elijah who's here, he represented the new covenant, the restoration of all things. Now why is that? Moses was the old covenant, Elijah represents the new covenant. This is according to the NIV study Bible. Well, because the Old Testament prophets had predicted before that awesome day of the Lord had come that Elijah would appear before the restoration of all things, which is the new covenant. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says this, Look, this is God talking, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That great and awesome day of the Lord would be the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, a day of judgment on, on the Old Covenant order, or the perverted Old Covenant order, the rabbinic kingdom of the Jews. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse, which is what happened. He came with the purpose of turning the hearts of the children to their fathers and vice versa, but it, they didn't repent. And then, of course, the land was struck with a curse when the city was burned in 8070. Mark 9, 11 through 13 says this, parallel passage to where we are now. Then they began to question him. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, the scribes say that because of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Now, why would the disciples ask that? Well, it's because, Jesus, you're showing us messianic stuff here. You just said that you're going to be raised again from the dead, and then we go, we go up on a mountain, we see you appear in glory, and we see you with these two Old Testament figures. So, obviously, something good's about to happen the kingdom's about to get established. But wait a minute. Don't the scribes say that Elijah's supposed to come back before the Messianic kingdom is established? Where's Elijah? All right, so Jesus answers this logical question. 
He says this, Elijah does come first and restores everything. He, Jesus replied, how then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So again, the disciples are thinking about restoration, messianic kingdom, and Jesus is trying to get them off of that and say, wait a minute, uh, death before there's resurrection. There's got to be death. I've got to suffer. I've got to be treated with contempt. So he, he, he tries to get the disciples off their wrong track there, which is what he's constantly trying to do here at the end. And then in verse 13, in Mark 9, he says, but I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it's written about him. So here Jesus takes care of the scribe's objection. Yeah, the kingdom is about to be established because Elijah has come, because John the Baptist was Elijah. He said that in another verse, which I don't have in front of him, but he, he told him, Elijah is John, John the Baptist is Elijah. And he was the forerunner. He said the axe is at the root of the trees. Kingdom's coming down, 80, 70, one generation from now, bang, it's all going to go down. And then the church will be established, and that's what the restoration of all things is. And by the way, the restoration of all things is not that all the demons and the devil get saved. It's not ultimate reconciliation, which is another one of the damnable heresies that's floating through the, con through the margins of the evangelical church in America today. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the establishment of the new covenant. Now, Moses and Elijah appeared to Peter, James, and John. We know in another passage they were asleep suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus so there Peter James and John they wake up and they see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah what were they talking about maybe they were talking about Christ's death maybe to encourage Jesus you're going down to Jerusalem to die this is part of the plan Luke 9 here's the parallel passage Luke 9 31 they appeared in glory and were speaking of his death which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem so that's what they were talking about they were talking about what's coming up death crucifixion in Jerusalem. And this actually is what Jesus had been talking to his disciples before sending them out. And in Caesarea Philippi, if you recall, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going down to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things and be crucified. Now, John Gill points out that Moses and Elijah, even though they had glorified bodies, their glory was not, was inferior to the glory of Christ, was not quite as brilliant as Christ's glory. A speculation, the Bible doesn't say that, but it's probably true. Matthew 17, verse 4. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Elijah. Well, first of all, why was it good for Peter, James, and John to be there? What was the purpose of the transfiguration? Why did God do that? Well, here's some options. First, it was a confirmation of who Jesus really was. He was the Messiah. You recall that a lot of people weren't sure who he was. Matthew 16, previous chapter, thir verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? So the people were confused, and he wanted testimony after he died of him appearing in glory on the mountain, which would, of course, tend to prove that he is the Messiah. Simon Peter answered the question in Caesarea Philippi. He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. But a lot of other people didn't know that. So he's trying to, God is trying to confirm Jesus as Messiah. The second th reason why the Mount of Transfiguration occurred, why God brought it about, According to the NISV Study Bible, it was an encouragement to the, to, the, to, the, to the disciples. They had just been told of Jesus' impending death. Matthew 16, verse 21, previous chapter. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he might go to Jerusalem, that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. 
Of course, you would think being raised the third day would be cheerful, but they didn't understand that. All they could, they could understand kill, though. And the idea of resurrection was kind of faint, faint in their minds. But by seeing Moses and Elijah, maybe they understood that there's life after death. That might have encouraged them because they were all going to face death, not just Jesus, all of them. They, they had to face stuff that no human beings ever had to endure before, ever before or ever since. And Jesus and God are preparing them for what they have to face. Now the question uh, now arises: Why did Moses, uh, uh, excuse me, Peter, want to make three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for for Elijah? NIV Study Bible speculates he wanted to erect new tents of meeting, like in the Old Testament. He wanted to make new tabernacles, little places where the Shekinah glory lived. Peter was Jewish, thinking in Old Testament terms. Or perhaps, says my NIV study Bible, he was thinking of booths used at the Feast of Tabernacle. Maybe. It's not really clear what he was thinking about, except we do know that he was looking for glory now. He liked the idea of Jesus being glorified up on that mountain, but he didn't like the idea of Jesus suffering. You know, that's when he said, No, Lord, never shall this be for you. So he apparently was still not reconciled to Jesus' impending death. Remember, Remember, he never was reconciled to it, really. He chopped off the high priest servant Malchus's ear when the temple guards came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on crucifixion night, on, uh, excuse me, the night before the crucifixion. Je Peter just couldn't handle it, the fact that Jesus was going to die. And so he liked the idea of glory now. Don't go away, don't go away. In fact, one of the parallel passages says that Moses and Elijah were walking away when, when Peter said that they were leaving. Peter didn't want that glory to leave. He wanted to stay, and that's the way we are. We like to, what is the old phrase, eminentize the eschaton. We want to take heaven and bring it down to earth now. Before you can have the eschaton, you've got to have death and resurrection. You've got to wait until the God's redemptive purpose in history, his redemptive pattern of salvation is accomplished and finished, and then we get the glory. In other words, we've got to be a little patient. Peter was not patient. He rebuked Jesus for saying that Jesus would die in Jerusalem. Never, he's told Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. He didn't want to leave this transfiguration scene. And he cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest slave, at the arrest of Jesus. Peter was still had a this-worldly mindset. Jesus was trying to get him to think about the next, not only the next world in heaven, but also the next age, the church age on earth. All right, this verse says, Then Peter said to Jesus, when is this then? This after the three awoke from sleep. Adam Clark says the transfiguration was probably at night. John Gill says it was definitely at night to better show the glory of the transfiguration. They were probably sleeping. Luke 9:32. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. So we know they were sleeping. And of course, when do you normally sleep at night? And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with them. Now, why did they wake up all of a sudden? Well, the bright light from the transfigured bodies could have woken them up, or they could have heard Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. In any way, they woke up to some re a remarkable scene. Now, Mark and Luke add the interesting fact that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Luke 9.33 says this, As the two men were departing from him, that's Moses and Elijah, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He woke up from a sleep. He saw three transfigured people. He was dazzled. He was sleepy. He was groggy. He was confused. And so he said, let's make three tabernacles. Let's, let's, let's keep this scene going on. Mark 9, 5 through 6. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say, since they were terrified. There's another little interesting detail from the parallel passage in Mark. They were terrified. 
It scared the blazes out of them to see these three glorified people waking them up from their sleep in the middle of, uh, in the in the nighttime. Why didn't Peter know what he was talking about? Well, he was frightened, he was terrified, and he was foolish in thinking the glory would be permanent. Because after all, the reason for those tabernacles was to permanently keep the glory there on the temple, on the on the mountain. You know that Jesus didn't even bother to give him an answer about those tabernacles. He said, uh-uh, Peter, uh-uh, we're not even going to talk about that. Someone has said, and I forgot who, that Peter was equating the glory of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah by building three tabernacles. All three would have the same sort of tabernacle. I don't know if you'd say that about Peter. He was kind of groggy. He was terrified. He didn't know what he was saying. I don't think he's trying to think that the glory of Jesus was equal to Moses and Elijah. I, I don't know whether Jesus was shining brighter than Moses and Elijah. I don't know. I think that's speculating a little too far. Matthew 17, verse 5, While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. That's the name of a seminal New Covenant Theology article by John Zenz. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He's the whole focus of the coming kingdom, the restoration of all things, building up the fallen tabernacle, replacing the old covenant kingdom, the rabbinic Judas, uh, uh, Judaizing system to get rid of all that and start over the kingdom of God on earth, the church. That's what this is all about. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I know uh, this is one more. Uh, once again, this is an affirmation of Jesus's Messiahship. He's the son of God. Listen to him. Listen to him. Of course, the disciples had done a great job of not believing a lot of the stuff that Jesus told them, despite all what he was teaching, teaching and showing them. But uh, now they got a voice from heaven to back it all up. Bright, shining, glorified Jesus and a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son is, exact, is exactly the same words that God used at Jesus' baptism. Another time God's voice came from the sky, Matthew 3:17, and there came a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Of course, the purpose of this, as I said, was to encourage the disciples' faith given the horror that they were about to face, the persecution of the Jews, the crucifixion, and all that accompanied them. Now, that bright cloud, it's like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. God often comes in the figure of a bright cloud. And it's not an ordinary rain cloud, but a shining cloud. In the Old Testament, of course, it was called the Shekinah glory. Let's read Second Peter 1:17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. Holman Christian Study Bible calls the Shekinah glory cloud there the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. So this cloud is the majestic glory. Here's some other scriptures showing God manifesting as a bright cloud. I remember one time years and years ago, there was this guy who was a little eccentric, and he preached a sermon that I listened to about clouds and I remember thinking this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard well maybe I was wrong maybe there is something about this idea of clouds in the Old Testament let's read uh, two scriptures showing God manifesting as a bright cloud Ezekiel 1 4 I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north a great cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it in the center of the fire there was a gleam like amber great picture of God since God is a spirit we can't see him we see him under the under the cover under the aspect of natural things that we can recognize. These natural things tend to be sort of awesome. Well, here God is a great cloud with fire, lightning flashing back and forth in the cloud. Ezekiel 1.28, the appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the form of the Lord's glory. So there you see cloud associated with God's glory. In Ezekiel chapter 1, 
Clouds are frequently a symbol of God's presence to protect and guide people. I'm going to read quickly some scriptures that, that mention clouds representing God's presence and his protection. Exodus 16.10, as Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. After all, the Israelites were led by a cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud. Exodus 19 was a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. Exodus 19.9, the Lord said to Moses, I am coming to you in a dense cloud so that we'll hear when I speak with you and we'll always believe you. So God appeared to Moses in a thick cloud. Exodus 24, 15 through 18. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered covered it for six days. So there you have the Shekinah glory appearing on Mount Sinai in the form of a cloud. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So there's the Shekinah glory on top of Mount Sinai as he revealed himself with the, the law. Exodus 33, 9 through 10. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. So there it's very clear that God appears to his people in the form of a cloud, and he appeared to James and John in the form of a cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him, God said. Now Moses prophesied that the people would listen to the quote-unquote prophet, Jesus, in Deuteronomy 18:15, very famous passage, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And usually people stop quoting right there. God will raise up a prophet. That's Jesus. Then Moses attacks on at the end of this verse, you must listen to him. And listen means, by the way, not just listen, but it means listen and obey. For example, a parent tells his child, listen to me, son, obey me. It means obey. Matthew 17, verses 6 through 8. When the disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. Then Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except him, Jesus alone. So they've already seen Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah have left. Then a cloud came, God speaking from the cloud. Now the cloud is left, and there's Jesus. He's probably unglorified by this point, I would think. The reason Jesus had to tell them, Don't be afraid, when you see something supernatural from heaven, that's the natural reaction. It's terror. Because it's not something we often see. Could be, according to John Gill, that they had fallen down with reverence. I don't know. I think they were plain frightened. This is, as I said, this is a typical reaction when God appears supernaturally from heaven in an unusual way. Daniel 8, 17. Daniel 8, 17. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Daniel falls to the ground, terrified when he sees the vision. That, I don't know, was it an angel he saw here? Acts 9, 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's conversion fell to the ground, fear. Now when Jesus said, don't be afraid, it shows that he was not angry with them for their lack of faith. He comforted them. Comforted them. He acted the part of a mediator between God and man. Now Jesus often told his disciples, you of little faith, as I've been pointing out through these audios, yeah, I, I just love how he's constantly telling them, oh, you don't believe, you know, he said, gee, you're standing on the water out here. You walked on the water, but now you're sinking, you of little faith. You had enough faith to come out and walk on the water partially, but you don't have enough faith to stay walking on the water, therefore you have little faith. I mean, Jesus' requirements for faith were pretty doggone high. 
he often told them that, you know, but he also interspersed these these admonitions or these characterizations of his apostles as having little faith. He interspersed those statements with direct manifestations of his power and glory, which, of course, would then build up their faith for the times when he didn't directly manifest himself. And this is application time. How many times does Jesus do something in your life miraculously and then you tend to forget it because he sort of disappears and you say, where are you, God? How come you're not answering this prayer? God is not a genie in a bottle, folks. He expects you to walk in faith most of the time. And then when your faith gets weak, bam, he'll do something providentially wonderful or he may be directly miraculous unless you're a cessationist he won't do anything for you but he might do something providentially for you and then you say oh 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 now i realize why i believe through all these times when god seemed to be what is it deus absconditus the hidden god he was gone he wasn't there where was he and now all of a sudden he shows up well that's the way jesus operated and the whole thing that, that motivated him, whether he was hiding himself or whether, or whether he was directly manifesting his power and glory to the, to the apostles, the whole point of it all was to show his love for them because he loves us. He loves us with a love that is enduring and inextinguishable. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that's the way he works with us. He wants you to walk in faith, and then he'll show you things to help you when, you, when your faith is impossible to sustain. And then he'll say, okay, keep walking in faith until we see him face to face in glory. Some people say that because this whole scene on the Mount of Transfiguration ended with Moses and Elijah leaving, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets, and only Jesus being left behind, this tends to show that, this tends to show that the law and prophets were complete and fulfilled. Not only Jesus was there. Going on to Matthew 17 verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, why? Why would Jesus tell them to not tell anybody about what they had just seen? Well, here's some options. First, this would be a better time after Jesus had risen from the dead to tell the story of the transfiguration. It would be more believable then. I mean, after all, you got somebody to rise again from the dead. You can believe that he appeared on the mountain transfigured. Jesus, another option as to why he told them to be quiet is that Jesus had already promised that there would be no sign from heaven except the sign of Jonah and he didn't want the apostles, excuse me, the Pharisees to get this sign because they were asking it unbelief. Now think about how this would especially irritate the Jews. Jesus was hated and yet he was seen talking to their beloved law and prophets representatives, Moses and Elijah. And here this false Messiah claims he's talking to Moses and Elijah. They wouldn't believe Peter, James, and John. They would think the whole thing was made up. And in fact, Jesus knew that if the disciples told the Sadducees and Pharisees that they would be casting pearls before swine. Now, an interesting thing here, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. That includes the other nine disciples. Why would they not be told? Well, they would likely disbelieve. Perhaps Thomas didn't even believe after the resurrection. But I don't know. It seems to me hard to believe that they would disbelieve uh, something that the disciples told them had just happened. And plus, Jesus would have told them that what had happened to and They're not going to disbelieve Jesus. So I don't think that's a good speculation. It could be that they may have become jealous because they weren't let in on the privilege. And given the fact that human nature, that could very well be what they were why Jesus didn't want the other ones to know because this was too much for them. They would be jealous of what they had obtained. Now, Peter, James, and John obeyed Jesus' command. Luke 9, 30, 36 says this, After the voice had spoken, only Jesus was found. 
They kept silent and in those days told no one what they had seen. So they kept quiet. Now they did discuss it between themselves because Mark 9.10 says this, they kept this word to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. So you see that they didn't understand what this rising from the dead business meant. He's going to rise from the dead. Now exactly what does that mean to us who live after the fact? We of course know what it means, but they were before the fact and they weren't sure. They still weren't reconciled to the fact that Jesus had predicted he would die. How can this Messiah, my gosh, he's doing all these miracles? Talk when he died. Nobody's going to touch him. Nobody can touch him. But yes, he was going to die. This, of course, again, just shows that God so many times does things in ways we cannot predict. We don't understand his ways are not our ways. Death before the resurrection, that was not the disciples' way. That's not the way we would have it. Matthew 17, verse 10, so the disciples questioned him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, it was a traditional Jewish teaching that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, well, if you're the Messiah, as you're trying to show us here on the mountain, and uh, as we have confessed, as Peter, speaking for all of us probably, in Caesarea Philippi has confessed that you are the Messiah. So if you're the Messiah, where's Elijah? Because the scribes say Elijah's got to come before the Messiah, and we don't have Elijah. Where is he? Maybe the fact that Peter, James, and John, who was who, probably what the three disciples were questioning Jesus here, because the other nine haven't been told yet, the reason they might be asking about Elijah, they just saw him. They just saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they say, okay, well, now, is Elijah going to show up here too on the earth to show himself to everybody before you do, Jesus? So that, it's a logical question here. It, it flows from what had just happened. Now, where did the scribes get the idea that Elijah must come first? Malachi 4, 5 through 6. God says, look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And by the way, and, and I don't have the verse where... Jesus tells them that John the Baptist, well, it's coming up, I'm sorry, in the next verse, but Jesus is going to tell the disciples that John the Baptist is Elijah. So that great and awesome day of the Lord is after Elijah comes, after John the Baptist comes. Well, John the Baptist came, the awesome day of the Lord was AD 70, 40 years later when Jerusalem and Israel were destroyed by the Romans. Now, I said that the disciples who were questioning him here were probably only Peter, James, and John, as John Gill and Adam Clark say. Because the other ones would have no reason to ask a question at this point. Not really, because Peter, James, and John had just seen this messianic glorification, this transformation of Jesus, and so it was logical. And they had seen Elijah, so it was logical they would ask about Elijah. We'll go to Matthew 7, 11 through 13. Jesus continues in his response to the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replies. coming from, he's referring to Malachi Four verses 5 through 6, Jesus says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. He didn't directly say John the Baptist, but he, he gave them enough hints where the disciples figured it out. John the Baptist was the forerunner. Elijah is the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, so therefore Jesus is the Messiah and John the Baptist is Elijah. Metaphorically, and notice here, hyperliteralist, dispensationalist, here Jesus fulfills a prophecy non-literally, but symbolically or typologically or in a non-literal fashion. Verse 12 here, Jesus says, the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer, he was had his head chopped off, he was killed. In the same way, Jesus is going to be killed. One more prediction. He let it all out, told the disciples, I'm going to die, guys. Face it. I am going to die. 
Now, I mentioned this earlier, I'll mention it again. When Jesus said that John the Baptist or Elijah is going to restore all things, he's talking about the establishment of the church, the kingdom of God on earth. The axe is the root of the trees so that the Jewish kingdom would go down and in its place would rise up the kingdom, the church. But he is not here talking about ultimate reconciliation. Apparently this idea has been around for a long time. Adam Clark, who wrote in the 1800s, he says this, No fanciful restoration of all men, devils, and damned spirits is spoken of as either being done or begun by the ministry of John, but merely that he should preach a doctrine tending to universal reformation of manners and should be greatly, greatly successful. Obviously, ultimate crock. That's the end of the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. I hope you enjoyed this audio, and we'll see you next time as we continue with Matthew chapter 17.